Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Design Exec Club Town Hall. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design and the Exec Club. Joining me here is a tremendous panel of some of the smartest people I know when we're trying to go talk about how we're creating a better future, how we're looking at the new possible. And today's focus is how do we actually get beyond zero? Um, today in Australia, we found out that the, the uh, net zero amount that everyone's talking about will still mean that the environment is going to warm up by 2.1 degrees, and that's probably not acceptable. We need to work out how to do better than that, and there's no better people than the architects in, and other designers that are here to go talk about it. We're going to be talking about everything about how do you actually redesign tech stacks so that you actually wind up with more efficient code, more efficient servers, more efficient solutions, and also how do you actually source and choose materials which are going to last a long time in the built space so that we don't wind up in having the invested carbon that we then dispose of very quickly. Dylan, I'm going to throw across to you there because I know that you're in the pixel building here and uh, the pixel building, is what is it like? It's like 20 million stars efficiency. One, well, tell us a bit about the building that you're in and where that fits into a beyond zero concept. Pixel building was a demonstration building that we designed and built from 2007 through 2009. Uh, it sadly is still the world's highest rated lead building, but not for long if I've got anything to say about it. Uh, we scored a perfect score in Green Star and we really set out to do not just a, a carbon neutral operation, but a, but a carbon uh, zero building offsetting all of the embodied energy in the building. So it was an experiment and a demonstration. It's a laboratory of, of, of a sort to, to, to test all of the things that was in the market at the time. So we put in tracking solar, anaerobic digesters, vacuum toilets. It's water balanced. It's at the, at the time that we designed it, the front page of the age every day had like, you know, 10 days water left, you know, because it was the end of a 10-year drought. And it was such a big drought, we built a $5 billion, you know, desalination plant that was delayed due to rain. Go figure. So... Pixel, Pixel was very much about demonstrating that it was possible to build translational technology with existing technology into a building that could, that could raise the bar and go beyond using less to actually creating net positive and net energy zero buildings. Okay, so I'm going to keep going here on the architecture front here. Um, Chris, the Laboratory of Visionary Architecture, LAVA, that's, that's your crowd. Now, to have visionary architecture, it's got to both have um, a visual appeal, a functional appeal, but it's got to be kind to the environment as well. How do you balance out that? Well, one of the problems um, that we're facing is that generally architecture is driven by the real estate market, and the real estate market is usually a short-term game of uh, building to sell as fast as you can for as much as you can. So build cheap, sell expensive and you don't have a long-term invested interest. And the shift really seems to happen in developments that are, for example, built to rent or on a more long-term basis where the uh, owner or developer has a long-term invested interest in reducing energy cost and uh, producing long-term gains uh, out of the development. And one of those uh, projects, for example, was the Masta City project that we worked on in the United Arab Emirates, which was built in a similar way to the um, pixel building, maybe as a prototype for a new type of urbanism that is uh, car-free, waste-free, uh, accident-free as well, and uh, based on renewable resources. Unfortunately, that project also came under pressure during the financial crisis and then all the sustainable efforts were kind of thrown out by all the economic pressures replacing uh, sustainability. But that 
is kind of the conundrum that we're facing in every project uh, and that we're fighting against. And so you touched on something that's really interesting there. One of the things that's making electric vehicles slow on uptake is that they've got this future economic benefit, but it's in the capital purchase price. And I think what we see there with the buildings, as you were talking about, we've got a project that's underway, we've got an economic crisis, there isn't as much money available, so we'll actually reduce some of the environmental future environmental benefits for a, a saving at this point. But what we've done is borrowed from the future. And what we've borrowed we're not, is... Uh, yeah, we're not being built for, for the future costs, only for the current cost. It, you know, that'd be interesting if we had something like a carbon tax or there was a way that we could actually factor in that future value. And, we're, and we've seen that's hugely unpopular because it's got the word tax in it. But there's many ways that we probably should be thinking about that, and that'll come around. Um, Theo, I want to go across to you because your practice as K20, some people would think it is, but uh, after a long conversation with you, I found out it's actually K20. 18 years ago, you thought this idea about getting beyond zero was something that was important to do. And you've also focused on how do you go put um, environmental sustainability into a lot of projects by stealth. Tell me a bit about that journey and how do we actually accelerate that? Is it something that there's a market that's focused on that or have we actually got a a recalcitrant market out there? So the market is there. The challenge is for us to innovate. One One of the challenges with sustainability is the market is under pressure all the time. So the challenge for us is to do more with less and the, the solutions that we can do as architects, I believe, is, is with the strength of our designs, with our pens and our thinking. And the, the challenge really is to do it by stealth because if we're announcing that we're doing all these add-ons, all these extra things, the perception of the marketplace is that must cost more. So therein is the challenge. And one of the things that we've found in working with government over the last you know, 18 years is there is a... a, a um, you know, budgets are hard to come by. It doesn't matter, global financial crisis, pandemics, whatever. You know, everyone wants more with less. And the real challenge is, is to provide it in a way that it's integrated within the building. And then if we can do more, we can do more with that. And it's not complicated to do. And it's something that we've refined over the last 18 years, our methodologies, our processes, where we're actually able to allow the client to get what they need out of the process and then exceed their expectations. And Part of those expectations now, our thinking is, is to move beyond zero, as we discussed last time together, Mark, to actually allow our buildings to do, to actually be producers. And that's the challenge for us is how we can actually pump that into the program on the same cost rate basis. And one of the buildings that we're completing now, which is made out of um, a product that we're actually manufacturing ourselves called SLT, Simple Laminated Timber, there's a patent pending on that, international patent pending on that at the moment, is making use of a waste product out of the supply chain. The the ability of that is is obviously, you know, the carbon that's stored in the timber, the ability for that is we're not actually having to order a forest to be cut down as is similar to cross-laminated timber. And the ability for that is it's all made locally as well, which is another, another advantage as compared to some of the other products out there as well. And again, you know, that's led by you know, the innovation thinking of of us as architects. And I say it again, like we are the most important people in the supply chain. And the challenge is for us, there are problems everywhere, everywhere we look at it, guys, there are problems and problems and problems. And and it only takes one of us, many of us to find solutions. And we're all doing it, we're all part of it. And we just got to keep on doing that. And there are many reasons why we shouldn't succeed. There are many reasons why we shouldn't succeed. 
and there was only one reason why we should, and that's what we should be honing in on. Okay, and so we're going to come back and I'll, I'll touch in with each one of you uh, architect brains here a little bit as we go along. But yes. um, I, I want to go and actually now go across to Mike Biggs. Mike, at uh, Telstra Purple, you're coming up with innovative solutions, which are how do you use new technology? But one of the things that we know with new technology is that you can actually have very carbon um, expensive um, technology solutions or very carbon efficient technology solutions. How does that factor in with when you're coming up with the solutions to people? Is the appetite, give me the more carbon efficient tech stack, or are they actually trying to say, just give me the most um, cheap to market? Where, what's the behavior? Oh, um, it's a little bit problematic, actually, because uh, we've talked about this before at Telstra, Telstra broadly, we've got all the Lego blocks. And so our job is largely about putting those together. We do a little bit of creating new blocks, but but less. Um, and so when we're, when we're dealing in that commercial paradigm of, okay, we're scaling, we need to do more cloud somewhere in someone's cupboard somewhere else, um, the idea of those emissions isn't always... Um, and then the cost, the hard cost, isn't even necessarily uh, present in the minds of decision-making that's happening today. So what we see is we're actually, I shouldn't blow the lid off what happens in cloud um, too much because it's a very good thing and it has its place, um, but often we make the case that it will cost less than what you're doing now. But the problem is we keep using it. It's like the M4 motorway, um, you know, oh, it'll be quicker to get into town, um, but everyone and their, every man and their dog is on the dang thing. And so suddenly it's slower and it costs you um, a ton of money to use it. So I feel like cloud and the scale that comes with that is, is a little bit problematic in, in that way. It's going to be cheaper on today, but in 12 months time, suddenly we're doing all this stuff and it actually costs a bit more. So hard costs, we can't always um, see the, f- the future of how it's going to plan out. Uh, it should be predictable, but kind of isn't. So it's back to that short cycle of decision-making, same as in real estate. We're only thinking about now. Um, and, and I think the, the emissions part of it is not really <clears throat> part of conversations that we're having. It really doesn't get on the table, which is a really a, a, a huge shame. And it, it just points to the way people are thinking about, about decisions. I just wanted to throw in a little point there about um, the Tesla cars. Um, I mean, they're supposed to be clean, but where does the electricity, where does the energy really come from? And if it's actually coming from coal anyway in the short term um we're kind of hiding hiding where that where that true uh, environmental cost is and i don't think we're having a sophisticated enough discussion about the fact that yes that's true but also it's the long game so this is kind of an interesting put it in someone else's cupboard for now piece even for the enlightened ones the less enlightened ones are just trying to save a buck and, uh, and you're very right there. The, the, the Tesla car is, it's a step change when you go think of propulsion unit, but it's actually, we haven't really done the transformation yet. I was in um, Berlin last year having a chat with um, uh, Florian Kerber, who was the general manager, at, or sorry, the managing director at Tashin Publishing. And he said, well, I'm leaving this role because I'm trying to go to see how do we change the conversation and how do we think about how my children will be going through mobility? The problem with the Tesla car is it's still two tonnes of vehicle to move a 100-kilo person, whereas you could have that person on a scooter and in a multimodal environment with public transport, they don't need the Tesla car in the first place. And so the, the challenge is that we're actually saying, well, it's, it's like it's a facsimile of a, of a car but maybe the car's the problem and the idea of having that very large cage of steel is, is a challenge. 
Um, last night uh, in London, we presented the London Design Awards, and one of the projects that uh, picked up an award there was a Priestman Good um, designed a Dromos vehicle. And the idea there is that they're autonomous vehicles that can either move packages or people in that last mile um, from transport. And we know that that's one of the big challenges that a lot of the congestion that exists in London comes from white delivery vans delivering packages for, for Amazon. This is, you know, we really need to think about if we're going to get to zero, one, we need less white vans, whether they're electric or petrol, we need them to be more efficient, we need the utilisation to be up. Um, the idea that most vehicles are only used for less than 10% of, their, of, of the day is actually one of our challenges there. And I think if I was going back to that idea of a tech stack, Mike, the idea that we're actually getting the computational power to be good, efficient code, so it's using very um, few cycles. We've also got that that is being utilised at as high um, capacity as possible so that we're actually not, not wasting a lot of energy in there. Amber, I want to go across to you because if I go think of what Mike was talking about and also what Chris was talking about, there's actually some of the corporate behaviour out there is one of the interesting things. And in your world with the branding and packaging, there's a mixture of substituting materials, but there's also the messages that are on the packages there. Tell me a little bit about what you're seeing. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I think, you know, you mentioned changing the conversation. One of the things we've felt as an agency that's, you know, in a, in a complex supply chain um, is we felt sort of disempowered to actually make any real effect. A lot of our clients are all blue chip, big clients, we really have um, very little ability to change the type of packaging that they use, to impact the type of inks that they use, to reduce, because a lot of those decisions get made before we even have a seat at the table, or even when we make a suggestion, the challenge is it becomes a cost issue. So we sort of changed the conversation really and decided that as a business, not only did we want to strive to be B Corp certified. So we're working towards that um, in the next 24 months is our core goal, but actually make more discerning decisions about who we work with and um, the type of relationships that we have um, and making sure that those businesses that are making those big decisions have clear policies upon engagement that we feel are ethically aligned to our business as well. So that means, you know, zero, you know, by 2030, a couple of our customers have zero environmental impact goals uh, with very clear steps that get updated all the time, you know, impacts on even just how their products and their supply chain impacts communities and where they're resourced and the type of ingredients that they're using. And we're really seeing a shift in the elevation of that communication at much more of a cold face area than it used to be. You know, yep. you'd be lucky if 10 years ago, anyone wanted to put even a slight signification on their packaging that something was recyclable, would just be like down bottom right. We work with Nestle. They've been working very hard over the past 10 years to improve their sustainability uh, reputation. And uh, they're doing a lot of work now where it's actually front and centre uh, globally on their packaging. They're starting to roll that out and they're doing um, a lot more work because they're seeing that the consumer demand is there. People want to see that and they're choosing by um, ethics just as much as they are about 
product and taste and that sort of thing. Yeah, so Amber, I'll come back to you in a second, but I just want to throw across here to Julie because your world of interior design being both um, uh, residential work but also in the aged care sector, how does that change? Because if you go think aged care, I think it's been designed for the long haul. It's a long journey after it's been done. But the resi side is often that people are changing the, the look and the feel at a much higher frequency. How are people getting to the point that they can begin to think about that beyond zero and the sustainable side in your world? Um, I find that it's very much a mixed bag. I find when I find when a client knows a lot about beyond zero, they know they know their knowledge is is so high. And then there are still very much a cohort of people who just either don't know enough about it or don't know anything about it or don't care about it. Um, and they're the harder ones. I mean, I think, I think residentially that the government has a lot of initiatives, you know, the um, the changing of LED lights in your homes. I, I don't know if that happens in Victoria, but in New South Wales, it certainly is a, a big initiative here. Um, you know, the, the, the government basically, basically subsidises you to change your down lights to the new LED um, and similarly with commercial spaces and and for us from interior design generally I find we're learning it's a big learning curve for us to know what to specify that's um, green rated um, all of those things that the architects uh, are 20 steps ahead of us I always I always feel so so I think we're learning off each other I think the biggest challenge I have um, more from the aged care sense and having seen it in the last few months is the amount of PPE gear that has had to be used and the wastage that that is just part of the process. I mean, you, you wear something once, you throw it away, everything's wrapped back in plastic. You know, we've gone from trying to be really careful with plastic usage to seeing a lot more pa- plastic and having been on, on site the other day at a home, just seeing the amount of waste but what do you do with that sort of, um, I don't know what the solution is. But I think from a built environment and from an interior space, the biggest challenge I have with, with clients is, is educating them on the cost of, the, the bigger costs that they see um, in the initial stages, but the long-term gain that you get out of it. And, and they're yet to see that, you know, when, when, when a building is budgeted for $30 million, they allocate bits and when something is more expensive and usually anything that is healthy for the environment or healthy for us or anything that's healthier comes with a price tag um but developers only see short not all of them but some of them only see short term rather than the long-term gain and I find that that's that's a challenge I go through. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's that slip of, of priorities mm. actually comes down to values and also culture, doesn't it? That yeah. it, there's some things that we know which are optional and mm. caring about the environment is still optional. It's not mandatory. We know workplace safety. You've got to go have workplace safety in there. You'll be shut down if you don't have it. And that's something which we just take for granted now. We haven't got to that point yet about, well, the PPE should be coming in. Uh, is it, you know, a re, uh, compostable fibres? Should it actually be something which actually is much more friendly to the environment? It's, oh, no, there's a panic, there's yeah. a crisis, we can put it in plastic. And, and we're, designing, the wrong thing. we're designing for the baby boomers now, like pushing ahead, and they're going to be so much more in tune with all this and they're going to expect 
fit-outs that caters for all of this, you know, the recycling in the kitchen, or it's just, it's just not going to be a bin underneath the sink. It's going to be a lot more focused than that. So, and then, you know, of course, part of that comes lots of more dollars going into the developments. Yeah. Now, Julie, I believe you need to run away because you've got to go do some uh, sustainable design at the moment. So thanks for letting us know about that. But I'm going to throw it back to Amber here. Thanks for joining us. And so, so Julie brought up a challenge that we've got there, and the challenge is that um, there's people who are putting on their packet that says that we do good things, but the behaviour from the consumer isn't, I'm, I, I must have that on my package. And, and that's an interesting thing, that the hallmark isn't something which is a first-order decision to say it's either included or excluded from my purchase decision. How do we get to the point that those hallmarks are actually something that people are just naturally thinking about? Because that's actually, you've got to get in their head about the overall priorities and values, don't you? Well, I think that's culturally led. So one of the things I wanted to touch on that Julie talked about in our, um, the preferences of customers, you have customers that are culturally and ethically aligned to the choices that you make as a business and you have customers that aren't. One of my observations about from a customer perspective is we used to find that working with big businesses was more ethically challenging because it was all about the you know, corporate greed. It was all about the money. It was kind of seen as if you worked with a, a tier one blue chip client that um, that meant you were selling your soul and that the independent small brands were actually the one making more ethical decisions. Now what we're seeing is a, sh a shift in that, and it's not to say there's not more independent brands thinking about that because there certainly are, but their influence or ability to make change is at a much smaller scale. And now what we're finding is consumer demand is changing. And so the big corporations, whether they've really liked it or not, are forced to make those changes because, and it's, and it's globally mandated. And so therefore we're actually seeing that they have better policies uh, and they're making more significant changes in the past. With relation to changing consumer behaviour, I think like anything, it's it's through repetition of messaging. So if a brand is communicating that it's important to them and they're making it, it's not back of pack, it's front of pack if we're talking about a, a fast-moving consumer good in a, in a retail environment, then that actually starts to train consumers that maybe they should be looking for that. So then when other packaged goods don't have that communication, it sort of raises a flag about why. And it just becomes a slow-seeded process of priority of information. Um, and I think that that just needs really all businesses and all brands to be talking the same language and to elevate that. And then consumers over time, and of course, it, it becomes generational. My younger children are much more conscious of everything in our recycling needs to be separated out, all of our soft plastics, the children get very annoyed when they're buying products that are overpackaged, so it starts to influence the type of products that we buy. Um, and I just think they're from a generation where environment um, is number one in importance, and therefore they they want to look after their planet, rightly so. Yeah, and uh, if I go back um, to um, town halls ago, uh, we were in the US, 
and uh, Karen Circuit from um, uh, Collins, uh, that Corinne turned around and she she was focusing on the idea of maybe our inspiration comes by actually looking down towards the children and seeing what that what they value, and that's the values that we're going to take forward into the future because that seems to be where we're getting a lot more guidance that's in there. Um, Betsy, I want to go in and actually have a chat with you. Restoration Hardware, a huge multi-billion dollar stock exchange listed company. You're one of those big organisations that we've been talking about. How does it work as far as people who want to go buy your products? Are they looking for the hallmarks? Are they buying it because it's actually got some sustainability because it's going to have a durability and it's going to be there for a long time? How's that working? Because there's always the chance that they may not be purchasing that. They may just be going for the style. Right. Well, in fact, when Amber was talking about large organizations who either comply because it's part of their DNA or they comply because they feel that it has gives them a competitive or market advantage. I think within RH, it really is part of the DNA of this organization and it is top down. It's the leader of our company that um, have never seen the man outside of a black t-shirt. He is completely living the dream of what sustainability means um, from a material perspective as well as a craftsmanship. So for us, clients are coming to us because they know designs can be timeless, even as progressive some of them are going to be. So, um, and then you choose the materials which are not only processed well, um, and for zero uh, great sustainability and zero carbon footprint, um, low organic solvent processes, things like that. But they know that that's going to be in their home for decades. And there's not going to be an issue with recall because there are fumes emitting from a piece of furniture. So um, I think given the fact that we have a very large retail presence, and we're, we're such a large company, it's our responsibility within the community and within the industry to really lead the way to, to be that right partner for not only our end user clients, but also our hospitality clients. Um, the, the other thing, Mark, that we are looking at more and more is not only the choice of our partners, as Amber was talking about, you know, every once in a while you get to choose who the people are with whom you you. Um, have those close partnerships as clients, but also in our vendors, because we do contract manufacture. So we can choose partners that are being um, conflict responsible, as well as sustainably um, harvesting materials. Indonesia is a great example. 100% of our tea comes from there. We only work with plantations that are pulling a tree and planting a tree. Um, and then secondly, moving closer to where our client base is. So a lot of what we have going on now is looking at increasing the number of factories and fabrication sites closer to the main base of where we are, regardless of what the labor looks like um, in terms of cost. It's the responsible thing to do. Okay. And so, Richard Henderson, I want to go across to you. You, you know, you've been trusted over the over the last decades in. How do you go actually help a CEO who's trying to go get their imagination and get the organization's imagination into the future? How do they get to the point that they start to talk about something which the people down the chain, the kids necessarily want, but maybe the parents don't want and don't know that that's a first order purchase decision uh, by a sir? How do you start to get into that world? 
Uh, thank you, Mark. In fact, it's so ironic. I've just got off a reason I was a bit late. I just got off a call to a large manufacturer uh, company talking about exactly what uh, Emma was talking about and, and the conversation is, is about the change from values-driven, which is a, about the customer, into a humanity-driven uh, organisation because that's, in my view, where we should be focusing upon. The difficulty that you've got, you have got is that the top of the organisation has to shift their mindset from being values so uh, customer values and production and cost and all that sort of stuff into something where they're contributing to a greater good. And this is where culture, you have to influence culture, uh, and we're using culture in, in different discussions here, but internal culture, to actually inform the management that this is actually what the company should be doing. And the word culture is actually two words, cult uh, and er, cult. Now, cult is a belief system. And that, to me, is where uh, you know, companies have got to start looking at. But the difficulty, of course, for a consultant like myself, the culture of, the, 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 of a business is not going to engage, engage people like me. It's got to be the leadership. So I think you can only do it by pressure. And for, by, by um, in fact, this conversation I had, I saw something and I invited a conversation with the marketing director to say, hey, you're missing a, you're missing a whole conversation here. Would you, be, would you be open to having a conversation that is complementary to your brand that gives you a whole different story to talk back to your uh, culture as to why they actually are working there. Yeah. So, look, I can't answer your question straight away. Oh, you just do this lever. It's actually about influences, I think, and conversations. I think that's the only way you can you can um, you can change anything. Yeah, and I, I want to just reflect. Early in the '90s, I was one of the forerunners of the interactive digital industry. And it wasn't until 99, so you have about a seven or eight-year period, that we were pushing the bandwagon that uh, digital was going to change the world. And then in 99, something happened, which was that we got what I refer to as the chairman's lounge calls. And a CEO would be in the chairman's lounge at the airport. They saw another CEO and they rang me and they said, can you actually give me a digital strategy so that when I get off the plane in an hour's time that I can go say to my colleague, this is what we're doing? And it was so important from an optics perspective. Let's say it was great for me. I made a lot of money out of those calls. But what they needed was that the cachet was actually that they had a strategy. They didn't yet have the culture. They didn't yet have the wherewithal of how they were going to do it. But they knew it was important for their reputation. And so I think that's a really important thing that we go see that, uh, you know, we monitor. When is that emerging through? I think we're actually quite close to it. But that comes to the challenge of the creator to provide a, a, a benefit. So, you know, unfortunately, you still have to go back to ROI. But as you know, my mantra is return on imagination is just as important as return on investment. So you have to actually qualify that. And that's probably where mature, more mature design firms, et cetera, or people in that, ilk, in that business side of things uh, can use the processes of val validation as being to their benefit to get a creative uh, thing happening. Yeah, and we've seen it throughout this year that the idea of the me has turned into the we and to hear that that next phase for people is that they're going from the values, my values, into the humanitarian values. Thinking about humanity is a very interesting thing. Um, Keely, I want to go across to you and talk about um, your, you've got a split practice between the wallpaper business that you've got and you've also got then the interior design that you're doing in there. 
How do you find people are approaching you? Are they coming and saying, just make me a delightful space? Or are they saying, make me a delightful space that treads lightly on the planet and actually is going to be something I'll be proud of in future generations? Um, I, I think that there is generally an interest. If I take the interior design side of things and if I talk high-end residential, for example, then like you were saying before, perhaps setting the kind of culture or the tone of the project from the outset. So going to a mentality of uh, sustainability rather than consumerism, if you like. And that, you know, there can be um, some good things there. For example, if I'm doing somebody's home, perhaps there's furniture that we can reuse. Because like we were saying before, if you're, if you're going for products with um, zero emission, et cetera, they are more expensive. Um, so offering up that option of, okay, well then maybe we're going to save costs this way. Um, we're going to reuse some of the things that you already, you know, you already have. Um, maybe we're going to incorporate antiques as well. They're already existing. Um, and we're just going to, we're just going to think about uh, sustainability as, as we move through the project, you know, what, what about the, the paints that we use? Um, you know, what, what about the suppliers that we use? How about we try and get as much product as we can that's kind of closer to where the project is so there's not so much transportation, et cetera. Okay. You know, how about, how about we look at, you know, the products that we actually buy, um, how they're made, what the story is behind them. And if they are more expensive, we kind of, we want to be taken on the journey of where they come from, you know, um, where, where the product is, is produced, how it's made, you know, all, all of those things. Okay. And so, so what's interesting that this thread is going through about um, uh, just the designers helping to guide these value-based decisions to work out how do we steer people in the right direction because they may not be at that purchase cycle themselves immediately. Um, Celsa, I want to go across to you about the idea. You're involved in the digital transformation world. So you get to change things, as we were talking about. The Tesla thing isn't the transformation. It's a step change. And that transformation, how do you guide people that you're in investing into the solution that they've got, something which is low carbon, it's highly sustainable, it's actually going to take them a little bit like what Theo was saying. It's almost bringing that sustainability by stealth into the projects. Is that something that's complex and is that the first thing to go out of the project or are you are you able to go bring those values in without even people knowing about them yeah it's not a it's not a simple conversation unfortunately and there's actually a lot of synergy with what everyone here today has been saying and and what i'm seeing in the conversation that we're having um synergy and what chris said in that when there's economic pressures um it's very easy to have these kind of um, topics and that you know kind of uh, fly off the table so a lot of the decisions are, are, are being forced in that way. Um, what Mike was saying around um, these conversations are not actually explicitly surfaced in, in, in a lot of the conversations. So it's like, it's a shame that it's that we're not talking about this more and that we're having to introduce it um, ourselves, mainly from the other side of the spectrum, which is actually the consumer demand. Um, we're seeing that that is a conversation that we're able to have and bring that to the table. We're seeing that you know, from, from providing digital services all the way to the end touch point that people are, are valuing different things. And they're, they're, they're not just looking for speed and cost, like what Richard was talking about, that those are not, those are not the touch points that we're getting people to, 
to kind of um, um, prick up an ear and, and be attentive to this. It's more around how am I being efficient? How am I contributing to the community as a collective? And so even, for example, in, in, in transport, when we're providing a digital service for transport and the modality, the, how, mo how modular uh, transport is, it's not just about how quickly I can get there anymore. It's actually about, hey, what is my most carbon efficient way of getting there? And that's starting to become a lot more valuable for, for, for consumers. And I think that demand is perhaps the catalyst that we can use, at least in, in my environment and, and, and from what I am seeing is that you guys are not thinking about this, but if we look a bit further down the supply chain of your consumers are demanding this, you can have a very big change and be ahead of the curve, I guess, from what from the way you're thinking now, because we can surface what your consumers are looking for. Um, and that's from a client perspective. Internally, we're seeing a very similar kind of consumer demand being put onto the business. Our staff and our, even when we're interviewing talent coming into the business, they're having these same kind of demands. They're demanding that our business does business with um, other companies that have a, a sustainability portfolio, that they're demanding that we have our own. And, and it's good. Like, I think those are the pressures that are making us change. And the pressures from a consumer perspective is what essentially, uh, Amber, you know, to echo what Amber is saying, is what's going to help us have that conversation to kind of show them that, look, there's a part of the market that you're not just, uh, that you're not catering for. And there's a big conversation for us to have here. So um, yeah. that's what I'm seeing. And, and so what if, and so what's really interesting here is we've got people who there's a lot of alignment in our discussion. Um, it, we go all the way through the architecture, through the, um, the interior design, the branding and marketing, the technical solutions there. And the idea that we can actually affect the trillion-dollar economy rather than those small projects. I think, Amber, you were talking about often the courage that comes through often is coming from smaller innovators, and now that's shifted over to the uh, into the major brands in there. And that's a very important thing. You know, we can make changes in our environment, but we need to make them in the trillion-dollar economy, economy, not the million-dollar economy. Otherwise, they don't get scale. But then you've also got the fact that you've got brands like Camper. And I, Camper has this incredible story where there's always a spare seat in every meeting room that they have. And the spare seat is a spare seat for the customer who doesn't normally have a voice. And I think in this case here, what we need is actually a spare seat for the, the, the children, the future generations who are in every meeting and they're part of that value and discussion that we're having and that, we, and that we're building the behaviours around how we're doing that. But as we've seen in the US with the elections, we've got half the country who is saying we want to go in one direction and the other half of the company, country saying they want to go in the other. And I think from sustainability efforts that we've got lots of people who are aligned and wanting to do it better, but there's also a lot of people who are actually rejecting it and aren't doing things. And that's where the tough communication and the tough behavioural side is that we need to work out how we put into those systems and into those processes that they're not necessarily making a choice. It's just actually, as Theo said, sustainability by stealth. Um, Betsy, you sit between Asia, the US and also the Australian market there. What are you seeing as far as the way that people are, are thinking about, you know, the non-adopters? Are the non-adopters in the majority or are they actually in the minority at this point? Where are we up to? In fact, I was wondering where you were going with those U.S. elections. I was. I, I go to most of the No, it's true. Um, you know, and I think what we're finding is um, it's mostly a generational thing. 
So, you know, I've got the 27 year old son as well. And um, it's something that it has always been near and dear to the generation after us. Um, but I do think that there's a compliance issue if, if we're being forced as consumers and as industry people to hit compliance laws, or if we're being forced to buy things at a higher rate, you know, the movement from plastic straws to paper straws, people were fighting the fact that as consumers, we were having to pay more money, but it's just so much better for the environment. We can see what's happening outdoors. We can even see what's happened since COVID. Not as many planes, not as many cars. The skies have never been more blue. So for the naysayers, it's impossible to look outside and not understand the impact that we're having on our environment. So I do think um, regionally, I think it's less um, less of a ratio of um, no to compliance, yes to compliance. But I do think it's um, from a, an age perspective. I think people who are at the um, at the younger forefront of the moving technology to those things which are going to help the environment, I think it's just naturally occurring in the, in the younger set, and it's being really adopted by those of us who are towards the uh, the older set of our age. And, and thank you for that. And uh, I do understand, Betsy, you need to drop off um, because you've got a client lead that's come up there. Um, and Chris, I want to go across to you because you've done a bunch of projects which are about early stage development. There's uh, involvements that you've got with kindergartens. There's also in reading projects uh, for kids. What do you think might be the way that we go and approach this? Well, it's um, <clears throat> quite interesting that this topic has come up in, in almost everybody's contribution today, that it's about future generations and uh, kind of the shift in perspective. And obviously, future generations, it starts with education. And I'm always a strong believer that uh, the formative years are really these early years um, that never end. But say uh, in a kindergarten, you know, if you're in a prefab kindergarten without windows and getting frozen food delivered, then that's your reality. And that's what you think is what's going to happen all your life. And the same goes for how you deal with uh, energy and materials, recycling, waste, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, when we do these educational projects, we try to focus on this idea of imaginative, uh, creative futures and uh, sustainable learning as kind of almost like a side effect. So you don't want to like uh, hammer it into these children. You have to be sustainable. You have to be sustainable, but they learn it in a playful way. And we've recently completed a very large kindergarten in Vietnam, in the city of uh, Vinh City, south of Hanoi, um, which is all about this relationship between indoor, outdoor, between nature and technology. And uh, the kindergarten, for example, has a cooking school, you know, which is quite innovative for a kindergarten that they learn uh, about produce, about cooking and uh, preparing their own meals. Kindergarten has a yoga studio, so they learn about mindfulness and about body-soul kind of relationship and uh, has swimming pools and kind of, I mean, every kindergarten has kind of um, elements of that, but uh, to design that purposefully to teach the young generation about what is important in your life, in your body, nutrition, energy, environment, and how technology comes into it. And I think um, uh, most of you would have heard me talking about my Better Future Framework, which is the idea that we think about the grandchildren's grandchildren. 
five generations. So it's somewhere between 100 to 200 years, depends what socioeconomic group that you're in. So let's call it 150 years. You know, normally we think that the idea of planning is five years. But when you start to go out across multiple generations, the type of things that Chris has been talking about getting in in building great behaviours early on is such an important thing there. And we know that from a whole range of factors, so it's great great to think that that's where we need to do the intervention. But you only do that if it's something that you value and therefore you get down into that, uh, what Richard was talking about, the idea of thinking about the humanity um, values that are in there rather than just the personal values. I want to open up here the call to everybody. Uh, Chris, I think you need to actually head off um, uh, to another meeting with the clients. Thanks for your contribution. But I want to go in and, uh, Theo, particularly with you, open up some conversation here that I know that you've put in um, into aged care, you've put into community projects, a whole range of sustainable values that that weren't necessarily in the tender request. Is that something that you think is leaving a cultural legacy from a behavioural point of view and values in the community, or is it just suiting your needs and your values? It's been wonderful just listening to the varying points of view expressed by everyone in this forum, uh, Mark. Um, And what's common to everyone is the choice that everyone's got and the choice that's at their disposal. It's a choice that we make. And the reason why we make our choice, Mark, is simply we believe in putting the kindness back into the work that we're doing. Um, Do no harm. Do our work with respect. Um, Yeah, you can talk about the economics. You can talk about the future generations. All of that is entirely valid and entirely essential. The reasons why we do it is simply based on that we are working in an ecosystem of, of people, our health is intrinsically linked to the health of our land. If we stuff it up, we've stuffed it up. So it's a simple assembly of choices that we make. And the assembly of choices that we make in our cohort is quite easy. I mean, for heaven's sake, if we can do it, what on earth is everyone else doing out there? Mm. So um, that's the reason why we do it. And I think I think we can sort of, I think the challenge here as well, Mark, I think is we just do it like, you know, this concept of doing it by stealth. We learned early, early on, very early on in our career that, you know, intellectualising sustainability, you know, you know, turning it into an economic equation, turning it into anything that needs to be justified just simply didn't work. So doing it by stealth, from our point of view, just said, you know what, don't worry about it. Let's just get on with it. And, and I know there's, you know, many forces out there and I know the work that we're all doing is really valid and I know that the, the economics discussion needs to be had. So all the conversations are valid. Doing it by stealth is only just one part of that conversation and it's not the conversation at all. And I think it's I think the powerful thing is, is like in the work that, that we're all doing here collectively, guys, it's really powerful and it's just wonderful to see that we're all part of that because... We can't, none of, none of us can do it alone and the work that, that we're all collaborating in effect by the network is, is really significant and to be part of that is, um, is really powerful. And I'd like to add on to something like that. I, I really just love what you were saying there, Theodore, and, uh, you know, the quiet way. I was just doing this presentation to these guys today, a half an hour ago, and something I wrote down here is, you know, a guideline here and, how does a human being justify the gift for life, you know, that caring, give back, kindness, respect, making the world a better place? Exactly what you were just talking about there, beautiful. 
And then to be trusted by a company, uh, what matters most, and you think, you know, humanity, compassion, empathy, and an unbiased unity would be really, really important for an organisation. Now, the difficulty we've got with all of that stuff, it's what you call soft. In actual fact, it's like water. Water is soft, but when you hit it hard, it's actually as hard as concrete, right? So there's that combo of that dichotomy there which we have to actually articulate as creatives and separate creativity from meaning, as you just said before, Theodore. So, you know, that's how we sort of art designers should start articulating this. And it's very difficult to do and talk to someone who's a hard-edged business guy who's got, you know, 500 people and running a massive organisation and, you know, is linear. You actually have to go, you know, you go yin yang. But there are organisations and, and CEOs and people who understand that. It's just it's not too many of them actually want to hear it. So, so what's interesting with that, Richard, is you, you're going to have people who are leaning in and they're going to create those exemplary projects. You know, you, you can't talk to somebody about, those, about that if they're leaning out. But if they're leaning in and they want to go and actually see that they're doing the right thing for future generations, then we've got a chance to do that. And we've seen those exemplary projects have come through. Dylan, how many years ago was it that uh, the Pixel Building was done? 2009. Okay, so 2009. So we've got a decade uh, plus that's in there. And so some people lent into this crazy proposition that you had. Theo, you've got projects that go back through a couple of decades. I know Mike, Celso, you've got them, Amber, Keely. We've all got projects where people have lent in and we've had that opportunity. And that's really important that we actually amplify those and create recognition for the uh, for those courageous efforts that have gone in there. Because other people need, like I spoke about the CEO call that I used to get, which was, can you give me something that shows that I'm part of the future? That comes because other people have seen the exemplary projects. We can't be actually hiding these things in our drawer and just being proud by ourselves. We need to shine a spotlight on them. We need to guide people of where that future is and show them that there is a path forward. Otherwise, they're just going to ask for the same old. And that's a very interesting challenge there. Mike Biggs, I know with you and the and the work that you're doing as far as actually talking about the future of how digital products work, you're trying to get people who come from a very rational mindset often and try to get them into this non-rational space. Richard was talking about it as linear. You know, it, we need people to actually think about the future in a non-rational sense, not just economic drivers and rationality. How's that project going for you? Do you feel like you're pushing um, water uphill with a rake? It really is. And I think I just sort of made a couple of notes here from comments being being made here all coming together. I love the Zen thing, sorry, the yin yang thing. And I kind of use that in a lot of my work to describe exactly the same thing. I think we're really looking for the owner of the system who, who needs to be a bridge, who needs to bring the two halves together and, and the penny to drop for, for them. I think that's the only way. Um, another way to well, and by the way, that, that you're asking me about a very difficult thing that we're all dealing with. It's I feel like giving up all the time because you know the numbers. You can't argue against the numbers, and when you say to these folk, "I'm not going to have that discussion," then suddenly you're not in the room. So the the the, the, the that's kind of the nature of the problem. So you need to come in from the side mm -hmm. and and get these individuals have their own personal epiphanies. And so that's kind of the kind of work that I end up doing, even though I'm supposed to be doing consulting things. I had one other question to sort of comment on um, 
the consumer side. So that's the business side. On the consumer side, we're saying packaging and other things should have equal uh, representation of, say, say, a logo or whatever that to, to say this is sustainable or this is organic or something like that. Organic's probably not the topic here, but that's my personal story <laughs> from home. You know, do I want to buy the organic thing that's 10 times the price, for example, and it's probably not that bad anymore? Um, and then I was thinking, well, really, are we? And, and then the generational stuff, and and Betsy's gone, and but that that's really interesting about the younger generation. But are we having a really, really middle class conversation here, where we've all got the privilege that we can make choices about um, the cost of things in the meantime to get from the shitty Tesla to the proper systemic um, change? Um, and my question is, well, why can't poor people just do the right thing? And and I think it's meant to be antagonistic. I don't have an answer to it, but I think that's some of um, how, how we need to think about it rather than getting all of our hearts warm about, well, just do the right thing. We're, we're going to remain in a bubble um, and we need to I'm, find a way to, to help that to be uh, to be a thing. Yeah. What, can I just, one of the things that we try to do with our clients is we think about them as consumers. We don't think about them as someone building a building for some of that. They're, they're commissioning something from us and they're producing it in order for their clients to, to have an outcome. But the way that we find that we shift, we shift the thinking that's behind the way we think about our impact is with three horizons: a long-term horizon of legacy. What are you going to leave behind? What are you going to? What what what's what are people going to remember you for? What do you say in your deathbed? The mid-term horizon of inspiration. Why do you get up? What drives you? What's your inspiration for for the actions that you do? And the very short-term horizon of sustenance. How do I stay alive? How do I? How do I use my day? How do I use the time and the materials around me? If you can touch on all three of those horizons and get your consumers or clients to think about them, in that order, legacy, inspiration, sustenance, you can change the way people think about every decision and every investment that they make. doesn't matter if they're going to be building something to sell it. You can get them to think about legacy. Do you want to be known as the cheap chips dude who built the, sh the shitty slum of tomorrow? But you want to be known as this person. And if you can get people to confront that mortality and realise that we are only here for a couple of thousand days, then there's a way to shift perceptions in a very different way. Global warming's already here, Mark. It's already, it's it's just not evenly distributed. And it's and what we don't have in our mindset is the is is the is the urgency that that we need to address this with because as long as we think oh the sea's going to go up by three centimeters next year it goes three centimeters i've been down to St. Gilla beach and seas are not even going to fucking get over the wall that's not the issue the issue is that the the biosphere ultimately is tenuous and interconnected if we don't have any food doesn't matter if your beach house is there or not can i just jump in while you're doing that and just respond yep. to something that you said mike um around consumer behavior i, I think when you're talking about consumer behaviour, and you're right, you know, it can be a middle-class conversation, but to the point that I was making before about retraining people, the more the message is familiar to them at an accessible brand and goods level, so Bunnings, for example, McDonald's drive through the more brands that are talking to that audience segment care about this, the more the message gets out there that potentially they should care and then their kids who are in the car or in those environments or buying those products start to actually, along with changes in education, start to see that as being more important as well. So I think it's about making sure it's not the same type of brands talking about this and caring about this because 
you know, sustainability is, is not new. There's always been brands for a very long time that have, that have spoken to this, but it's actually about making sure that there's diversity in the type of businesses and brands that are talking to this and that they're reaching all sorts of audiences, whether that's people with lots of money, because that's a big problem in the, you know, in a higher socioeconomic, it can be a big problem too. Lots of consumerism um, all the way down to lower socioeconomic groups. Yeah. And Amber, I think the, you know, the next uh, town hall that we do in the Australian market is uh, January next year. And we're kicking off the year talking about thriveability. How are people thriving? And to thrive, you've got to be able to get past the pandemic, public health. You've got to be able to get past sustainability and environmental challenges. And you also need to be able to get past the social inequity challenges that are there. To have a thriving economy, we need to get all of those factors right. And then we start to go see the boardroom realising that there's an opportunity for them, uh, for them to thrive, as everyone else does. We're also planning in the middle of next year to go do a better future expedition down to Tasmania. Um, we're still stuck here in Australia, which isn't a bad place to be stuck, but we're going to go get the designers in Australia and get down. And actually, the reason we're going to Tasmania is because there was a, a project that showed that one person's vision in the form of David Walsh was able to go change the entire tourism industry in Tasmania because they had a vision that there was a different future. And then what David went and did was he came up with his proposition, he funded it, which was an amazing uh, correlation between his dream and having the means. But then he had to encourage these people to be rapid followers to then actually give him the wherewithal because he didn't provide all the accommodation, he didn't provide the transfers, he didn't provide the whiskey pubs that were there. And he needed them to share the vision. And then he had to turn around and say, we need to expand the product, and then they needed to expand it again. So there's this story about how one person having a vision with the means can turn around and actually change the future, and it's a tremendous story, and I think it's the type of thing that we need to have, that shared knowledge of how do you bring people along, not just break through. So, you know, we're definitely going to do that, but we do need to make sure that those hallmarks, the young education, those visions are all there because whether it's actually building a building that 11 years later still holds the highest ratings or if it's doing um, sustainability through stealth, making sure that systems are actually chosen the right way, we're getting the social equity there, we're making smart decisions, we're working out how the board can actually get inspired and understand how to be there, or making sure that we've got front of pack those messages. They're all things that need to be done so that we create, can create that better future. Everybody, I'm, I've done this in the last couple of town halls. I feel almost like an auctioneer here where I'm going to go wrap up. Are there any final comments that anybody has or do we think we're kind of coming to the end here? Have you got any final words? Are you all done? No? Okay, we're getting thumbs up. I'm going to actually call that a close on this town hall. I'm always humbled to go have your minds to, to help me to go walk through these topics. It's a very humbling experience. Uh, for the viewers, the next um, town hall that we're going to be doing uh, will be in Europe and the UK where we go explore what is actually their better future as they're mostly in lockdown, but they're trying to work out what is the path ahead for them and also how do they go look at the idea of beyond zero in their context there. Thank you very much for your time. We'll see you next week on the next town hall.